So if I'm here, I want to be useful to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you what I'm living for, and I hope that you're living for, is just that Christ be glorified, and that's it. There's too many people that are trying to build their own ministry, and they're trying to build their name, and it's no longer about the Lord, it's become about other things. And the only thing that's going to matter in eternity is were we obedient and were we faithful with what the Lord spoke to our lives to do. And without anybody knowing about it, because it doesn't matter to me if you know about it, it really doesn't. It doesn't matter to me if my wife knows about things. It doesn't matter to me if the Lord knows. I mean, obviously the Lord, but anybody other than the Lord, it doesn't matter to me what they know is going on. But between me and the Lord, what is important is that on a daily basis, am I being fruitful for His kingdom? Am I being the prayer warrior that I need to be? That's being salt in the earth. Okay? You being a prayer warrior is you being salt. Am I am I being a prayer warrior? Am I, is my prayers going forth and accomplishing things for the kingdom? When nobody's looking and nobody's around, but I'm just going throughout my day, am I sensitive to the Holy Spirit to witness to somebody? And, and a lot of times I don't even mention those things. I don't talk about them because it doesn't matter. The only person that, that, obviously that person, we need to love those people and that they're saved. In, in, but the only person that matters that sees any of that is the Lord. That's it. You know, don't ever live for people's pat on the back because they may pat you on the back one day and stab you in the back the next anyway. It doesn't matter. So the only thing that's going to matter is living for Him. That's it. And that what what is it like in secret? What is it like when nobody's looking? Are you giving everything to Him? And I'm going to tell you something too. If you're really living for Him, really, it will be the road less traveled. It will be the more difficult road, but it will be the most rewarding road. But it will be the road that you find out that not too many other people are really on. Most people are on the road to church politics. They're on the road to their own personal agenda. You know, we've been talking about these things, but those of you that are called into ministry, let me tell you, you know, in the board meeting I had with Reverend Anthony and his ministry, I was talking to them, the other board members and all that, just about us really needing to be careful in these last days to live above reproach because it's so easy especially in the society that we live. We just need to be really wise and careful, you know, with a lot of things, with, with how we're presenting ourselves, how um, we carry ourselves. We need wisdom. We need to be very careful. There's a lot of preachers that have been falsely accused of things. They were uh, just doing what the Lord's told them to do, counseling with, with somebody, and, and then somebody else came along and tried to spread rumors about an affair or something. You just need to be really careful about where you're at, who you're with, what you're doing, Really careful with money management. And don't, like I was telling Brother Anthony, I don't think he'd mind me saying this because I would say this to anybody, but I was just encouraging him. I said, don't follow the money. It's not about the money. Listen, you may have two preaching engagements in front of you, and you know one of them will be very financial. You know you're going to get a substantial offering. And the other one, you know that you're probably not. What do you do? Do you just take the one? You see, if you just take the one with the money and go with that, you're being led by money, and it's about money, and that, that motive is evil. It's the love of money. I said, you have to ask the Lord, where are you sending me? And he may very well send you where he knows there's not going to be a large offering, but you have to serve him and obey him. It's about him. It's not about doing anything. You know, a lot of preachers, it's like, is it about entertaining now? Because I know sometimes when you're watching uh, Christian television or whatever and people are singing, 
it looks the same to me as American Idol now. It really does. I mean, it, they're, it's like they're entertaining. The song is to entertain the audience. It's when has it become entertaining? It's supposed to be worship. And, and the preaching, it's like, okay, something's going on quick. Everybody get the video cameras over here. Get the cameras over here. You know, something's happening. It's like, is the motive of our hearts that Christ be glorified and the motive of your heart is you just love that person that you're praying for? Or do you want God to touch somebody so that you can become more famous? So that it can get on video? So that there can be pictures of it? You see what I'm saying? Quick, God's moving over here. Get the cameras. Why? I mean, nothing wrong with getting the cameras. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's the motive? It all boils down to motive. Because there's nothing wrong with taking an offering, but the motive behind it can be wicked. And it can turn into manipulation and witchcraft like nobody's business, and I've seen it. Um, and pretty soon, it can get to where there's these weird false prophecies. If you if you give X amount of dollars, then this amount will come back to you and all this stuff. And it it can really truly be a witchcraft there to manipulate people. You've got to be careful with these things. As you Many of you are called into the ministry. I'll tell you, Every day, you need to check your motives. Say, Lord, help me to see my motives. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I going to this place to minister? Am I going here that you might be glorified, or am I going here that I might be glorified? Am I going here for money, or am I going here just to obey you? Why am I going? What's the motive? Why am I preaching what I'm preaching? There's some people that all their sermons... Is, is about getting money. It's no longer about obeying the Lord. It's not. It's, it's, that's long gone. So is, why am I preaching what I'm preaching? What is the motive behind it? What's the motive behind um, what I'm doing in life and in the ministry? You know, some of these ministries started getting some money, and so they started building up so much and getting so much of a staff that it literally became not only like a business, but like this big monster machine. And they have to keep that machine going. They have to keep it running. And they need the money to do it. So let me say this. Why build beyond what the grace of the Lord is? You know, just ask the Lord, how, how, how big do you want it to be? How, how much do you want us to put into it? How big does the staff need to be? Why not just keep it to where it's manageable and it's Holy Spirit? Anytime we start raising ourselves or anything up beyond the grace of the Lord... Let's say the grace of the Lord is on this level, and because of ego, we brought it up here. That space between here and here, that gap right there, that's a problem. That space right there doesn't have the grace of God to sustain it. And so what people have done is out of their own ego, they, they've no longer humbled themselves, said, Lord, just whatever you want to do, we're just going to keep it on that level. They've gone beyond that. And they, they've hired too many people. They've, extend, they've, they've extended their finances too far. And it wasn't the Lord. And so now they've got to sustain it. And now what started out in the spirit is now in the flesh. And now they're having to, to try to manipulate to get money out of people just to keep the machine going. There's mainline denominations. There's ministries that are out there. There's fellowships that are out there that started out in the spirit, they're in the flesh now. What started out in the glory is now just a country club. What started out in the spirit is now just man. And it, it grieves me because I was asking a dear friend of mine, 
He's been in the ministry probably 30 years. And I'm telling you, in the past, he had a very powerful move of the Holy Spirit. His ministry, very powerful. And I was asking these questions. I said, did the particular denomination that you were part of, I said, did they ever acknowledge the move of God? And he stopped and thought about it and said, no. I said, did they even acknowledge anything? Did any of the leadership ever acknowledge what the Holy Spirit was doing? Anything. Anything ever said, any support that came for the move of God. He said, to my knowledge, to the best of my memory, there was not one thing that was ever said at all. And I said, let me ask you this. Ministries where the Holy Spirit was not really moving very much, but they became large and they had a lot of money, did they acknowledge those ministries? He said, oh yeah. Okay, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Why does money have that much influence? And I asked him this question. I said, did those ministers that had the money, were those the ones that ended up being raised up in positions of influence? He said, yes. I said, well, what about people that saw moves of God? He said, not to my knowledge. Isn't that sad? It's a vast difference from the book of Acts, isn't it? Where... When Paul and Barnabas were a part of the church in Antioch, and they were, what were they doing? They weren't in there strategizing around a table, how can we get more money out of people? No. They were in there worshiping and praying, seeking the Lord. In that environment of prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to a group of people, and guess what? They all actually heard him. Now, there's an idea. They all heard the Holy Spirit speak, and he said, the Holy Spirit, he said, set apart Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. So they, the elders there at Antioch, laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and blessed them and released them into their apostolic ministry. So what raised up Paul and Barnabas? Was it money? Was it their charismatic personalities? It was the Holy Spirit. Where's that at today? Anybody see the problem? All right, I'm going to talk about the priesthood. But listen, live for His glory, live for His name. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. 1 Peter 2.5 You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So you can see that you're a priesthood, that you're living stones that are being built into a temple, and that you are to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to the Lord. This is in the New Testament, and it uses the word sacrifices. Okay, so I want you to think about that. All right, and then I'm going to add a few other scriptures, Romans 12. 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what sacrifices are acceptable to the Lord? The burnt offering that your body is now a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. <clears throat> and look at Romans thirteen eleven. And this do knowing the time, that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. What does awaken from sleep mean? Remember I taught this to pray. To pray. Anytime you see awake, awake, 
get out of your sleep. It's talking about praying. Whenever people are sleeping, they're not praying when they should be in the Bible. That's what it's referring to, okay? So awaken from your sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on what? The armor of light. That's a powerful scripture. Did you know there's the armor of God, but there's also the armor of light? Did you know that? That's in the Bible. The armor of God, I'm not going to preach on it, but you know what it is, and I'm going to mention it just briefly in connection with the garments, but the armor of light is the glory. We need the glory in these last days. I want to walk around, and in the spirit realm, I want to look like I'm glowing. Amen? I want there to be a wall of fire around me that, you know, if devils try to come around, they're going to be like, man, look at that smoking fire there, and it's just... It's blinding them. It's hard for, And I'm being serious about this because I want that for you and every other Christian. There should be an armor of light, a fire around us, the glory of God that the enemy cannot penetrate. We need the glory. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. All right. I'm going to deal with some things that are going to be different tonight, okay? I tend to do that. Anyway, let's just do it. So, when I listen, I want to say something up front because I don't want you to get the wrong impression in those that are listening, okay? I, I have nothing against the medical field, so when I talk about this, I don't want anybody to think that I do because I really don't, okay? But when God created the nation of Israel and He gave them laws... He gave them a priesthood, obviously gave them like a Sanhedrin to govern the land. And he, all that he established, he did not establish anything that would be as we'd think of a doctor. He just didn't. But what he did do was he gave a priesthood. And I'm going to explain that. I don't have anything against the medical field. But I believe that if the church... I believe this with all my heart. If the church would begin to function as the priest that we're supposed to, helping people to get spiritually cleansed like the priest did, there would be so many more healings and miracles and deliverances to where far less people would be going to doctors. I'm just saying that's the way it is. God never established that. What we know in the medical science today has its roots in the Greek culture. Which is interesting because that's why in the Hippocratic Oath, that's why they oath themselves to Greek gods. Isn't that weird that that would be in there? And even the symbol, the snake and all that, is it goes back to a Greek mythology. That there was some magical staff that could bring healing if you touched it, all that. And even the prescribing of medicines goes back to the alchemy of the Greeks. So what we know today in medical science actually comes from the Greeks. And I'm not condemning anybody that goes to a doctor or anything like that at all. I'm really not. I'm saying, though, that if the church and the people of God will come up in our priesthood, there's going to be less people have to go. Amen? There's going to be a lot more healings. All right, the priestly garment. All right, there's a layer of white. In dealing with the armor of God, the priest and the priestly garments and the armor of God were different. 
the priest did not have shoes on. So you can see a big difference there because in the armor of God, they would wear the armor of God, we have shoes of peace. And the reason why that's important is because you have to walk in peace. If you don't walk in peace, the Bible says the God of peace will crush the devil under your feet. So you're crushing the devil under your feet as you remain in peace. The opposite of peace is fear, and it's also strife. People that live in fear and people that live in strife are not walking in peace, and they're giving place to the devil. But the priesthood, they didn't have those shoes on. Why? Because the tabernacle was a place of worship, not warfare. See, what you don't see in the tabernacle, and I'll come to this later with the stones, you don't see the colors green and brown because the tabernacle is a heavenly dwelling. And green and brown are earth colors. What you see in the tabernacle is like purple, royalty, red representing the blood, blue speaking of coming down from heaven, and white, which is righteousness. Also in the tabernacle, you don't see iron. Why? Because iron is a metal of war. Swords are made of that. But what you do see is the gold, which is like divine, the silver, redemption, and the bronze, which is um, judgment. You see those metals, but you don't see earth colors, and you don't see war. The priests did not have to have a shield of faith on them. They didn't carry a sword into the Holy of Holies, okay? They'd, it was a place of worship in a heavenly dwelling. But you do see two connections. Okay, the belt of truth with the armor of God, that, that has nothing to do with the sash. The belt of truth holds everything together. We've got to be established in truth. But the belt that the priest wore had to do with sexual purity. So they're different. But what you do see a connection is, you see a connection with the helmet of salvation and you see a connection with the turban that was on their head. Because it's so important that our minds are renewed both as a priest and a warrior. There's a connection there. Your mind has to be renewed. And what I want to mention about that right now is about being double-minded. I hope you can hear me. Double-minded, the Bible gives two negative promises for people that are double-minded. Two negative promises. Number one is, is that they'll be unstable in all their ways. And number two, that they, they cannot expect to receive anything from God. Now those are two... Very serious warnings there, okay? Unstable in all your ways. Not unstable in some. Unstable in all your ways? That's... Number two, that person cannot expect to receive anything from God? That's a big warning. In dealing with renewing the mind, it does have to do with throwing out wrong thoughts and meditating on the thoughts God wants you to think on, the Word of God. It does have to do with that. That's important. And we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. But what I want to mention is about being double-minded. Because there is a realm of persistent faith that keeps praying and praying and pressing in to miracles, and that is great faith. That's great faith. Abraham had to have that kind of faith. He had to have endurance in his faith. He had to believe over a long period of time. He had to be persistent. That's great faith. But there's a counterfeit to persistent faith. There's a counterfeit that's called double-mindedness. And the way that works, double-mindedness, is that that person will pray, but they really don't believe and they have a lot of doubt. And they keep praying about it, but they don't believe and they have a lot of doubt. You see what I'm saying? 
And that's not persistent faith. That's just having a lot of doubt. Now, the perfect example that I could think of about double-mindedness was Peter in the area of walking on the water. And I'm going to rabbit trail real quick about one of my peeves. I've never liked it when preachers down the apostles. They always got on my nerves. Because they'll talk about them like they're a bunch of idiots. These, these guys were mighty men of God. And let me just say to the preacher, one preacher to another that's making fun of them, if you were there and you were in their shoes, you probably wouldn't have got out of the boat in the first place. And the second your foot hit the water, you probably would have sunk. So don't even start with that, okay? So anyway, that's enough on that. So Peter, when it came to being double-minded, he, here's what happened. I want you to see it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about with double-mindedness. It has to, this has to do with your prayer life. It has to do with every realm of your life, everything that you're believing for, everything that you're believing for, financially, health, everything. Peter, Jesus was walking on the water, and Peter looked at Jesus and said, Can I come to you? And Jesus said, Come. Now, when Jesus spoke out of his mouth, come, that's the word of the Lord. That is the word of God, C-O-M-E, come. That's the word. Okay, Peter wasn't really so much walking on water as he was walking on that word, come. Okay, and he got on that water and his, his mind and his complete, total, undivided focus was on Jesus. And while he was single-mindedly focused on Jesus... He was walking on the water toward him. But the problem was, Peter got double-minded because he was trying to stay focused on Jesus, but then his mind got off of Jesus and onto the wind, the rain, the waves that were around him, and he got scared, went straight down into the water. That's a perfect example of being double-minded. Because the Lord has given us His Word. I mean, either He is God or He's not. Either he is, His Word is true all the way, completely true, or it's not true at all. What, did, what happened when Adam and Eve, God had told them, He told Adam, and Adam told him, but He told Adam, do not eat the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you'll die. Don't eat it. That's pretty clear. I mean, do not eat. That's not complicated, okay? It wasn't, you didn't have to write a theory. I mean, it was just there. It's, it was what it was. And Adam had told Eve that, so she knew that. If you read the scripture, Adam added to it. He said, don't eat it and don't even touch it. That's because she brought that up later. Anyway, it's funny. So Eve knew not to eat it, and Adam had told her, don't touch it in the first place. So that was the word of the Lord, don't eat from that tree. When Satan came, what did he say? He said, did God really say to not eat of this fruit? What Satan did was he tried to get them double-minded about the word. Did God actually say that? And we know that God did say it. They knew God said it. But whenever it was questioned, the word of God was challenged, they began to get double-minded. A double-minded person becomes unstable in all their ways. And they can't expect to receive from God. So of all the things in the Bible that we need to be careful about, we need to really be praying and believing that we will be single-minded people. Amen? 
Because how can you receive from the Lord even the great, incredible promises and the things that, that we desperately need if we're double-minded? See, a double-minded person will struggle not only with, with issues in the mind, with challenging God's word or doubt, but they'll even struggle with doubting their salvation. They'll struggle. The other part of the garment that is similar to the armor, first is the, the helmet and the, the turban. Second, though, is the robe of righteousness goes over the heart, just like the breastplate of righteousness. You know why that's so important? That in your heart you know I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because the devil will continually challenge that. So it's important both as a priest that when you're going in and you take off your armor and set it down, okay, and you're going in to worship the Lord, you got your priestly garments on and you're entering into the tabernacle and you're worshiping God and that you know as I'm coming in, I'm coming in through the blood and I am the righteousness of God in Christ because how can you approach God in the first place if you have all this doubt, fear, and unbelief in you that I'm not righteous, I don't, I'm not worthy, and all this stuff? What you're doing is, you don't mean to do it, but what you're doing is you're downplaying the cross. You were never righteous to begin with, okay? You, you were undeserving from the day one. None of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve to be righteous, but it's not about that. His sacrifice was enough. So by saying I'm not righteous, in actual fact, you're taking away from the cross. It's a false humility. Christ has made us righteous. And if you sin, confess your sins. And what does it say? He'll forgive you and what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we become righteous. So it's important as a priest and as a warrior that you understand that you are righteous because that is a great protection to your heart and your mind being renewed. So what I'm saying is about being double-minded. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. Kenneth Hagin one time, we've got to be single-minded in ourselves, but we also got to come in unity. The Bible says if two agree on earth is touching anything, it's done, right? Kenneth Hagin one time was saying God had given him a great revelation about faith and raised him up out of that, uh, that's really a deathbed, really. He was dying. He did die a couple times. Very serious, raised him up. For about a year, he had to walk in faith and confess his healing, even though his body was not completely changed. Make a long story short, he made a miraculous recovery, full, full recovery, totally healed. And he understood faith. But whenever he got married, his wife had not had all of that experience. So she wasn't quite on the same level of faith. But over time, she got there. He discipled her and the children, and, and they grew up in faith. And we go from glory to glory. Amen. We go from faith to faith. And there was a time that she got sick. And Kenneth Hagin said he was praying for her healing and he believed. But as time went on, she was not being healed. And, and he asked the Lord, he said, Lord, what is the problem? I mean, I'm praying about this and I believe. And the Lord said this. He said, the two of you are not on the same page at all in your prayer." He was praying for a complete supernatural recovery. She was earnestly praying that God would use the doctor to fix the problem. You see what I'm saying? Which, that's where her faith was, okay? I'm not condemning that, and Kenneth wasn't condemning that, but that's just simply where her faith was at that time, okay? And the Lord said, the two of you are not in agreement. 
You're praying one thing. She's praying something completely different. Which one do you want me to do? So Kenneth went to her and talked to her about it and realized that in such a short amount of time, there was no way that he was going to be able to get her faith up to where his was. So he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to agree with you then. You cannot agree with me right now, but I'm going to agree with you where you're at. And they touched and agreed, and you know what? That's exactly what happened. The doctor fixed it. It was fine. She was fine. But I'm saying that you've got to come into agreement. You can't just be double... You can't be double-minded in yourself, but you can't be double-minded when you're praying about things either. You can't have one person praying one thing and another praying something completely different. It's probably not going to happen altogether. You've got to come into agreement. Single-minded prayers. Amen? Let me tell you something, too, about double-mindedness. The Bible says all things are possible to him that believes. All things. We need to quit limiting God in general, whatever it is. Ministry, you know, Steve Hill used to say in the Revival Browns, if God be your partner, make your plans large. You know what the problem is? God can do anything, but people believe him way down here and limit him so much in their prayers that it limits, their faith level limits him to that level. God can do anything. This is the God that spoke over the earth, and I mean waters parted, okay? And, and the sun, moon, the stars, creation. God can do anything, anything. We need to stop limiting Him. But yet at the same time, we grow in our faith. You know, Reinhard Bonnke said, you know, he said when I first got in the ministry, there was no way that I could have believed for a million people to be saved. There was no way. He said, but I could believe for a hundred then once a hundred people got saved, then I could believe for a thousand. Then a thousand got saved, then I could believe for ten thousand. You see what I'm saying? He grew in faith. So I'm saying all this to encourage you, but we've got to not be double-minded about this. God can do anything. If somebody needs a financial miracle up here, but they, they limit God that He can only do so much. They need a physical miracle, but they limit God so much. The white garments of the priest were the foundational garments. The first was the undergarments, the breeches, which came up like pajama bottoms and covered their nakedness. And this is the garment of salvation. Jesus came down to the earth, was raised up. Okay, if all men be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. But anyway, it is, a, it is literally like these pajama bottoms, which is the garments of salvation. The robe of righteousness is, you know, even if you read in Revelation, it talks about these garments of white. It's that robe of righteousness. The turban that went over the mind has to do with holiness in your thought life. In fact, they put a, a gold plate on that turban on the front that said, Holy unto the Lord. It represents a holy, pure thought life. And then the sash that they wore represented sexual purity. Now this... This layer of garments is outer court garments. It's what gets you, when you're saved and you've visited the bronze altar and you visited the laver, these are the garments that you wear. Beyond that, to get into the holy place, you had to have, in that time, you had to be a part of Aaron's family. But the high priest would wear also on top of those 
those garments of salvation, those garments of righteousness. You know, interesting, I was reading in Isaiah 61.10 that it mentioned the bride and the bridegroom in, in connection with garments of salvation. So you see that they're the wedding garments. Okay? But you have that layer of white, which is righteous. Then you have the blue tunic on top of that. And blue always speaks of coming down from heaven. It's heavenly. It goes over the head, coming down. And it represents the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the clothing of power from on high. When the baptism in the Holy Spirit comes, the fruits and the gifts are there. The bells and the pomegranates. And this blue garment is the clothing of power. So I have to pose the question, for us to have these wedding garments on and be ready for the Lord's coming, I think that some of this might be more mandatory than what a lot of Christians are willing to accept. They don't like the tongues. But I wonder when the Lord comes, how important it's going to be that we were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Amen? And have extra oil. But that blue tunic had a reinforced neck area. It's very thick. And it was, it was very difficult to tear that. And what that represents is grieving and, and quenching the Holy Spirit. You've got to be very careful with that. You know, once you get filled with the Spirit and the Holy Spirit so powerfully at work in your life, you need to be careful to not do things that grieve the Holy Spirit and quench Him and, and, and resist Him. But that priest said that they could not tear, it says in the Bible, they were not allowed to tear that garment. If they did, they would die. And many of you remember the story, Jesus, the Lamb of God, Passover, as the actual Lamb was being brought into Jerusalem and examined. Jesus at the same time was being examined by Caiaphas, the high priest, and they could find no true fault in him, only false accusations. And while he was standing there, and, and he was quiet and not answering, the priest finally got mad at him, and said, I adjure you, I command you, that you're going to answer me. Now under law, he had, Jesus had to say something at that point. And so he said, okay, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in all of his glory. And Caiaphas got mad, and what did he do? He ripped the garment. Why didn't he die? For two reasons. One, he wasn't really truly supposed to be the high priest. That was John the Baptist. He was just a political figure. Number two, because the priesthood was over for him anyway. When Jesus got water baptized at the Jordan, John the Baptist had passed the priesthood. And think about how ironic this was. Here this fake high priest was standing in front of the true great high priest examining him. Has anybody seen the irony in this? But Jesus had submitted himself to this and that priest ripped his garments. And whenever Jesus died on Calvary and his garment was down on the ground and the soldiers cast lots for it, did you notice that they never ripped his garment? Why? Because his garment is eternal. He's the eternal great high priest. Amen? So that's the blue tunic. That's the clothing of power on high when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then there's a clothing of gold. The golden ephod. This is a vest. I don't believe this picture really does it justice. I think it's a vest in the chest area, more like this picture over here. But nonetheless, it, it was something that clothed and it, it represents the glory. I believe there's a connection with this garment of the golden ephod and the armor of light that Paul's talking about. You can see the priestly garments and the warfare garments do correlate a little bit. So 
the priest not only were to be clothed in righteousness, the garments of salvation, they are also to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and be clothed with power on high and have a prayer language, those bells that are chiming that they pray in the Spirit, and also they're to be clothed with the glory. We need the glory. We need God's manifest presence. What happens whenever you get hurt? You know, you smash your finger in the car door. What do you do? First you scream, and then secondly you, you apply pressure. Why? Because it leaves the pain. We need the glory, that weightiness of the glory on our lives that takes care of a lot of those wounds in life. Doesn't it? But the glory of the Lord will arise and shine upon His people. And the Bible, I believe, symbolically and prophetically speaks of the glory of the Lord in the last days, the latter house being more glorious than the former. I believe prophetically we're going to see the greatest, thickest glory in these last days among God's true people. And the glory of God is going to be seen upon His people. And that glory is going to be around us. It's a protection. But we need this golden ephod of the glory. Now, this golden ephod was a vest, and it had um, shoulder pieces on it. These shoulder pieces represent our responsibility to be prayer warriors. Anytime you read about something upon the shoulders, it's responsibility. The priests were responsible that they would take the ark on their shoulders and carry the glory. We're responsible that we're the prayer warriors. Why? Because the, the shoulder pieces had these chains that would come down to the breastplate. And the breastplate that was on this thing had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel that were over his heart. Because it was his responsibility as a priest to be an intercessor and a prayer warrior for God's people. It was his responsibility. And if he didn't do it, the people of God would have perished. That's the truth. They needed that. They needed him to be a mediator for them. They needed him to be a prayer warrior. I believe a lot of things that happen to people could have been avoided if somebody was really praying for them. Amen? We need to be, as priests, take on the responsibility to have God's heart for His people and to pray for them. It is our responsibility. So in that breast, in that breastplate... It folded over it open. This is really interesting. Now I'm going to go through this real quick. But it would fold over it open. And inside of it were these two things called the Urim and the Thummim. And, and people don't even know for sure what they were. There, there's a, In the Hebrew it indicates some kind of lights. So did they glow? You know, what, what was it? But anyway, there was these Urim and Thummim that were in there. And it was for making decisions. And I believe personally that the priest would seek God and then they would use them like casting lots and how they fell, God would speak to them through, through casting lots, okay? Which was a common practice during that time. In fact, in the early church, when they went to choose Judas's replacement with Matthias, he was um, chosen by casting lots. So this was common, okay? But there was that Urim and Thummim in there. Now, there was these 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me just give you this. You can go deeper in this, pray, and get some deep revelation. I'm just going to touch on it real quick. The 12 tribes of Israel in order of their birth. Then you see the stones in the order that they're listed. Then you see the disciples in the order that they were chosen. And then you see the 12 stones that were mentioned in the book of Revelation in the New Jerusalem. 
I believe there's a connection in all this, and there's probably so much deep revelation that we're never going to see it all. Amen. I mean, I believe there's a lot of things in the Bible that we're going to be talking about it five million years from now in eternity in heaven, going, wow, I've never seen that before. I just, that's the way it is, okay? So, the first was Reuben, and his stone is the Sardis, and it is blood red. The first disciple is Peter, and it seems like his stone is Jasper, which is also a dark red. You know what I think that represents? You've got to come through the blood. You've got to come through the blood. That's the only way into God's presence. That's the only entrance into the tabernacle. It is by the blood. Now, I'm going to skip over a lot of this and just give you a few quick ones, but I want you to notice number three, Levi. Who was Levi? The third born to Jacob, but his children, his descendants, were Moses, Aaron, Aaron's family. It was the Levites, the priests. Their stone was emerald, green. And in the New Testament, John the Apostle, his stone would have been emerald green, at least in this order here. So what was the Levites known for being priests that would minister to God? What was John known for? John was known for being intimate with the Lord and a prayer, prayer warrior. That's what he was reputation, the, the beloved of the Lord. Okay, He was the one that was seen to be closest to Jesus. He was the one. He was the only one when the soldiers came and Peter cut off Malchus's ear, all of them took off running into the woods. Peter was not afraid. He was, his faith was really being tested. He, he was thinking Jesus might not be the Messiah. I don't want to get into all that. But Peter was ready for a revolution. <laughs> he was ready to cut off an ear of a soldier, stab some people, let's take over Jesus. It's time. You're the son of David. That's what Peter was thinking. The disciples fled. Peter was ready to fight. What was John doing? John was the only one that stayed with Jesus through that whole thing. He was there at the trial. He was there at the foot of the cross. John was the one that was close to the Lord. So my point is, when you look at the priest and you look at John, it was people that were close to the Lord, intimate with the Lord in prayer. Their stone is emerald. Emerald is green. It's an earth color. You know how you're going to have victory and you're going to have uh, dominance in the earth realm is by being close to the Lord. The golden altar on the inside where they burned incense, it had four horns. That's the power to the north, south, east, and west. That's whenever we blast the shofar to the north, south, east, and west. It's the shofar horn going to the north, south, east, and west, just like the golden altar had horns that were facing to the north, south, east, and west. It is the power. Are you seeing this? We have authority over the north, south, east, and west as long as we're close to him and intimate with him. Amen? The last one I want to mention is the amethyst stone. Actually, I, I wish Brother Zach was here. I could thank him. He got a really powerful prophetic revelation one time, and he shared it with me. It was for somebody else, but he shared it with me, and it always stayed with me, and that's really where I got some of this from. But the amethyst stone actually is connected with not drunkenness. I know this is interesting. It's connected with not being drunk. Now I want you to follow me. Issachar was number nine. What was the children of Issachar known for? Discerning the times. They were a prophetic group that knew how to discern the times. That's in the Bible. They knew how to discern the times. Number twelve, Matthias and Paul. I put them together. 
Paul also was a very revelation-based individual, okay? The amethyst stone seems to be connected to them. Let me just read you some things I wrote out, then I'll try to explain it in a moment. Pearls and pure gold are also mentioned in the coming New Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation, those that overcome are promised to have a stone with a name written on it only for the individual and the Lord to know what it is. Now skip down to the amethyst. Represents not drunkenness as priests were not allowed to drink and then enter God's presence. Isn't that interesting? That's in the Bible. Issachar were those that had prophetic insight to discern the times. And Paul understood. Now Paul understood this. He understood to not let your personal convictions hold you back from God or to hinder other people as he was a man also of great revelation. Issachar is number 9 and Paul's number 12. So... If we will judge ourselves, number nine, if we will judge ourselves, then we can move into governmental authority. I know this is deep, but listen. When it's in the Bible, it says, Leviticus 10.8, it says this. The Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting. Or you will die. That's a strong warning. I mean, those death threats are strong warnings, especially when they come from the Lord, okay? This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish. Why? So you can distinguish between what is holy and common, between what is unclean and clean, and so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees of the Lord that he has given them through Moses. This might be why Nadab and Abihu died. Did you know Nadab and Abihu came in to the tabernacle area and they got their censers, I'm assuming from the bronze altar, they got this bronze censer, started burning incense on it, that is nowhere in what you're supposed to be doing. And one to go into the holy place just doing their own thing. You were not supposed to use that sensor for that purpose. I mean, what were they doing? And God let fire jump out of the Holy of Holies and fry them. They dropped dead. Crispy critters fried right there, okay? Now, right after that happens, God spoke to Moses and said, Moses, tell the children of Aaron, don't be drinking and going into my presence. So it kind of insinuates maybe Nadab and Abihu had had a couple too many and weren't thinking straight. I'm serious. And then they weren't thinking straight and they started doing stuff in the tabernacle area that they were not authorized to do and it got them killed. Well... So we need to be really careful because I know that the body of Christ overall, there's a lot of standards now that have been very lowered. You know, where the body of Christ used to be very strongly against certain things, now it's a free-for-all. I mean, it, you can go to some places and, and they'll, they'll tattoo you, they'll pierce you, they'll, they'll drop the F-bomb in church with you, they'll, they'll go out and get drunk with you and all this, and I'm telling you stuff. That stuff right there is not of God, okay? And those people, I love them, but they're not walking with the Lord. They're in sin, and they're going to be judged for it. If we're truly His, we're going to live separate from the world. There's going to be a difference between us and the world. All right. So just be careful with this drinking business, because there's a lot of Christians out there that authorize it, but I'm telling you, it can hinder you from the presence of God. It really can 
uh, Rodney Howard Brown's ministry was always known for getting people filled and drunk with the Spirit. I mean, that's, that is what he is known for. I mean, he's, it, it's branded, it's there, everybody knows it. And he made this statement. He said, since the body of Christ has been doing all this drinking business, he says, when I go places now, the people that have alcohol in their life, he said, I, I'm having a hard time getting them filled with the Spirit at all. And it's interesting because, well, think about it. Okay, here's a man that I very much respect his opinion, especially when it comes to getting people drunk in the Spirit. I think he knows what he's doing. So if he is saying that it's difficult for them to get drunk in the Spirit, we need to listen to that and then think about this scripture now. The Apostle said, Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Now that scripture starts taking on a little bit more meaning in light of what Brother Rodney said, doesn't it? Like maybe people that are getting drunk with wine are not going to be able to get filled with the Spirit because they're in sin. You see what I'm saying? All right. So the job of the priest was to teach between what is holy and what is profane and to bring cleansing to people in places. The priest knew how and had the authority to cleanse land spiritually, to cleanse homes spiritually, and to cleanse people spiritually. Now I'm going to tell you, I want to get this on video, on the internet, I'm going to tell you that you better be careful. And I know those of you in the sound of my voice, you know this. But y'all just amen me while I preach it because there's people that need to hear this out there. And this is going to go out to the world through the internet, okay? The realm of the occult. Now, here's, here's a good example. Let's say that there was a room full of people, but there was one individual that had some kind of, I mean, deadly biological chemicals all over him. He was immune to it, but he was totally, completely covered in it. But you couldn't see it, you couldn't smell it, but it was there. You go into this room, and you're walking. It's a crowded place. And you brush up against this guy as you go on to what you're doing. But you brush up against him, and you keep walking. Even though you walk away from him, you've been contaminated. That's a good example about the occult. See, people want to play with the occult, and they want to mess with it, but the truth of the matter is that once you brush up against it, it's contaminated you. Amen? Once you brush up against the occult, whether you're playing with it, with Ouija boards, you're playing with it with uh, divining rods, pendulums, you're trying now to, to read tarot cards, palms, you're trying to get psychic revelation. You're trying to hold seances and communicate with the dead. All of that is under the, the realm of divination. And what it is, it is something strictly forbidden and under a major curse in the Bible where God very strongly says, do not participate in that. It is satanic. What it is, is trying to get information from the dark side. You're not getting it from God. You're getting it from demons. I couldn't say it any more plain than that. So people that are trying to talk to the dead, they're not really talking to the dead, they're talking to demons. Whenever you get psychic revelation, you're not getting it from God, you're getting it where? Demons. Whenever you're going and you're trying to read tarot cards and all this stuff, you're, God the Holy Ghost is not going to mix those things around and speak to you through tarot cards. He's not going to do it. 
So who's talking to you? Demons. Whenever the Ouija board starts moving on its own, it's not the Holy Ghost. So who's moving that stupid thing? Demons. So people that are communicating, it is demonic. Okay? And I'm telling you as a priest that you're brushing up against the dark side and you may keep walking one day and say, well, I played with it and I walked away from it, but you've been polluted and contaminated and there's something on you and you need to get it broke off you. The other realms of witchcraft and the occult, the realm of witchcraft, which is the power branch. This has to do with spell casting, incantations, different rituals. Rituals that are done that may have to do with some kind of bloodshed, sacrifices, um, mixing certain types of uh, candles and different types of rituals where you'll chant certain things and do certain candles and all of that. All of that is witchcraft. And the way that it works, it's not hard. The way that it works is the witch has learned how to do certain things to conjure up demons that will now cooperate with them. They want to put a spell on so-and-so, so they do their little love spell. The demon comes. They send the spell against the person. The demon goes. It's trying to mess with that person. That is witchcraft. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. Christians that pray for the, de the destruction and downfall of other Christians, that is witchcraft. It is demonic. Christians that have allowed their mouth to be lit by the fires of hell and they're trying to manipulate, they're trying to intimidate, they're trying to control other people, that is witchcraft. And I'm just telling you, all that witchcraft stuff is deadly, it's occult, it's satanic. Jezebel rules over that realm. And it is evil, and once you participate in it, you're brushing up against that stuff, and you've picked something up that you need to get off you. There was a woman, I saw her give her testimony that she had, she came from a Christian home, but she started messing around with divining rods, which are similar to what, back in the day, where they had water witch. But anyway, she was using it for whatever purposes... She says she thought it was innocent. All of a sudden, all, all hell started breaking loose in her life. She was having things jump on her at night, literally choking her. Uh, she'd wake up at night and paranormal stuff was going on like crazy. She was tormented. She was losing her mind. Why? Because she brushed up against it. You cannot play with this stuff and then just walk away from it. Okay? <clears throat> in the material branch of the occult is sorcery which has to do with material objects that are owned that are supposed to give you power. Anything that you own that you think gives you luck, gives you power, is going to make you wealthy, is going to make you attractive, whatever, okay? Things that you have that's like a talisman, okay? Um, it's, it's a statue, it's something that you pray to, it's something you worship, it's something you have in your possession, some kind of a staff. Alistair Crowley had a staff and he believed if he touched something it would die and it probably did. He was a very evil man. But anyway, I'm just saying that this sorcery business, that's what sorcery is. You're using material objects like alchemy and other things in connection to the satanic realm. That is satanic. You're brushing up, uh, up against the satanic world and you're picking up things you don't need to pick up. And that means you need to go through your life. Do you have free Masonic materials? Do you have things with pentagrams and goat's heads in your home? Do you have statues of demon gods? Do you have things in your possession that are connected to Satan's realm? You need to destroy them and you need to get them off your property. I remember um, a few years back we had gone through a search 
and through the Holy Spirit's leading, my father had found this old Freemasonic ring that had traveled down my mother's bloodline, and her ancestors were high up in the Masons, and they didn't even know they had it. But the Holy Spirit highlighted that thing, and they found it. My dad got a pair of pliers and demolished that thing and got rid of it, and praise God, it broke something off the home and off the family. Amen? I'm going to tell you, there's things that are connected to these satanic objects. They act like a lightning rod. You take a, some kind of demon god idol, something like that from witchcraft. You put it in a home, and it acts like a lightning rod that draws demonic spirits into that home and brings that home under a curse. People that have those things in their home will report things were fine before. All of a sudden, people started getting sick. People started fighting. People started having nightmares. Why? Something's now in the home that's not of God. You've got to cleanse it out. Sexual immorality pollutes and defiles the body. Through sex, two people become one. That means if you have sex with a prostitute, you become one with her and everybody else she slept with. And not to mention the diseases attached to this, but the spiritual pollution and the demonic that comes into people's life whenever they are sexually active. And not only that, but you lose part of yourself and other people. The two become one. It's a soul tie. You're losing part of yourself to them, them losing part of themselves into you. And people that are sexually active, they, they, they'll say they feel empty. Even though they may be having a good time in doing what they're doing, they say, though, that they feel empty inside because they're losing themselves into many people. And God has to sever all those soul ties, bring healing and cleanse that temple. Marking the body. It's become something that's fashionable to get tattoos and piercings and all this nonsense. I'm telling you, that is not of God. It pollutes the body. I've prayed for many people that have gotten tattoos and piercings that have been delivered of demonic spirits. And I'm telling you that it opens people up to things. I've had multiple people... I can, I can name names. I wish Rachel was here. I'd bring her up here. She'd be amening me. I, I'm telling you, it opens people up to demonic stuff. It, we're not supposed to mark our bodies, okay? Also, substance abuse. Things in your home, things that control you, anything that controls you, okay, is polluting your life. Get it out of your home. Get it out of your life. You need to go through your home. And clean out. Is there old music CDs from your past? Old DVDs? Things that are garbage. Go through your home. Go through your car. Go through your life and clean it out. Get all that junk out. Because you want you want demons in your home? Then put on pornography and watch it late at night and see what happens. You want demons in your home? Then bring some kind of pentagram or some witchcraft or some kind of idol of another religion in your home. I'm telling you, as a priest, I'm trying to help you clean out your home Clean out your life and get holy before God. Amen? Blessings. I want to close with blessings. This was an outer court ministry. The power, the awesome power of blessings. The children of Israel would come. They would go to the tabernacle and they would bring their goat or whatever with them. And they were going to take it to Aaron. Aaron was going to kill it. Cut it in five pieces, burn it on the, alt, the burn altar. The blood would be sprinkled all around. Their sins would be forgiven. After they were cleansed, then Aaron would speak a blessing over them. This was all outer court. I really haven't got past the outer court yet. But Aaron would lift his hands. Under Jewish tradition, I don't know, but this, this supposedly looks like the... When they do like this, you'll see them do it. It's supposed to look like the name of God. Okay, So you see a lot of Messianic congregations blessed that way. 
But anyway, or this way, however they do it. And they'll speak a blessing. But Aaron would speak a blessing over the people. And he would say, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep and protect you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. Lift up his countenance towards you. Give you his peace. Now, let me just go through this quickly. Life and death are in the tongue. Amen? Life and death is in the tongue. So inside a home, what people are speaking out of their mouths, it goes out, including what you're allowing to come through television movies. You can be careful and pray over it and all that. But listen, that stuff goes into the atmosphere of a house. And it's just like those little kids that that dip that into soapy water and blow bubbles in the spirit realm. Your words are encapsulated and they go out of your mouth like these little bubbles into the atmosphere and they burst and they're either releasing life and blessing or they're releasing death and curses. But life or death is in the tongue. That's what it's releasing. Okay? So we need to be careful what we're speaking. Now here's the difference between prayer, prophecy, and blessings. Prayer is petitioning God. God, will you do this? We believe and He does it. Prophecy is inspired speech. It's where the Holy Spirit is speaking through you to edify and encourage a person or to uh, rebuke and correct something that needs to be exposed or to foretell the future, but that's prophecy. Blessings are altogether different. I want everybody to say this out loud. There's prayer, there's prophecy, and there's blessings. I'm going to tell you, all three of those are different. They are not the same thing. Prayer, you're asking God. Prophecy, God, the Holy Spirit speaking through you. But blessings are where you are opening your mouth and using your authority to speak words that you want to see happen onto a person, a place, or a thing. And God will back you up. Blessings are awesome, powerful. Awesome, powerful. In the Bible, one of the most coveted things would be for a son to get his father's blessing. Why do you think Jacob and Esau, there was such a wrestling about it? And if you look at their life after Jacob was blessed and Esau wasn't, there was a huge difference. I mean, it was obvious that the blessing made a huge difference in Jacob's life. And it was obvious that Esau was not blessed. Are you following me? So blessings have the power to bring change and empowerment in somebody's life. Things that have been stubborn start blessing them. And it can bring change. The tongue is the rudder. Remember in the book of James, James said your tongue is like the rudder on a ship. The ship is huge, the rudder is very small. Your tongue is small. It's a small member of the body, but your tongue will turn the ship of your entire life. Your tongue can turn the course of your whole life. 1 Peter 1.9, it says that don't repay evil for evil bless, uh, or don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay insult for insult. Don't curse somebody when you're cursed. Now, when I'm saying curse, I'm not talking about profanity and cussing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about speaking death and destruction and negative. Okay? He's, Peter said, whenever somebody curses you, don't curse them back, but contrawise, bless them. Contrawise means this. Things are going like clockwise. Contrawise is, is that you're starting to force it to go the other way. See, the natural reaction to the flesh is when somebody's cursing you to curse them right back. Somebody hits you, hit them right back. I mean, you watch little kids. That's not something you've got to teach people. That's just the flesh. Amen? So, that's the way it is. And so what the Lord is saying here is, 
it's going that way, but contrawise, you're going to have to discipline yourself to force it to start going the other way. So whenever people are speaking out of their mouth certain things, it can curse and turn that life that direction. There's parents that have spoken things over kids, you'll never amount to anything. You know, your life, you'll end up pregnant and in jail, you'll end up dead by 21 or whatever, and they curse their kids. And sure enough, those things either happen or it, it really cripples their walk in life. We need to be blessing people because that empowers them. Just like a curse will follow somebody and cause bad and hold them back, a blessing will follow somebody and cause good and will propel them into their future and their destiny. But we can, we do have authority to curse the works of Satan. Do you know you have authority to speak over sickness, be cursed in Jesus' name and die. And Jesus showed us that when he cursed the fig tree, didn't he? Let me give you some few things before I close. Rebecca, Isaac's future wife, was found by Abraham's servant. She was going to go back. Whenever she was going into something new in her life, her mother and brother, apparently the father was dead, and I'm assuming this brother was Laban, who turned out to be a scoundrel. But nonetheless, her brother and mother came out to bless Rebecca, and they said this. They said, Rebecca, may the Lord bless you, that you will increase to thousands upon thousands, and may your seed possess the gates of their enemies. Did you know to this day, Israel has increased to thousands upon thousands? And to this day, in 2013, you know, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, to this day, Israel still possesses the gates of their enemies. Tell, don't tell me blessings aren't powerful. Ruth and Boaz, whenever people get married, there needs to be a pronounced blessing. Yes, by the preacher, but also by the father of the bride and the father of the groom. There needs to be a blessing. And whenever you read the story, Ruth and Boaz, it's a beautiful story. But here they were, they got married, and the elders of the city came out, and they blessed Ruth and Boaz. Now, among the things that were said, the elders of the city spoke over them, may you be famous in Bethlehem. Now, why in the world would they even say that, you know? But that they blessed them. They said that uh, they blessed Ruth to be like a Perez and Tamar to bring forth, you know, children to build up the house of Boaz. They blessed Boaz, they blessed the marriage, and they said, we bless you that you'll be famous in Bethlehem. If you read the genealogy of Jesus, Ruth and Boaz is in the direct gene genealogy straight down to Jesus Christ, who was famous where? Bethlehem. Aaron spoke the blessing over the people. Moses and Aaron came out. Aaron blessed the people in the book of Numbers, or the book of Leviticus. And you know what? After he blessed them, the Bible says that fire jumped out of the Holy of Holies and lit that altar, that bronze altar. There is something about speaking blessings in connection with the fire of God falling and revival breaking out. You saw that in Brownsville. Melchizedek. Abram had a promise from God. You will be the father of many nations. An old man who... At this point in time in his life, I'm sure was impotent. His wife was older. She was beyond the age of childbearing. They were elderly. And he had held on in faith. He believed God. This is persistent faith. He believed God that God would still fulfill what he said he would do somehow. 
And while he was believing God, nothing had happened for many, many years. And Abram went to war with the four kings. My favorite story in the Bible, Abraham and his family whipped four kings in their armies. I love that story. Anyway, he comes back and he pays tithes and he goes to Melchizedek, who's the priest of Salem, and they stand face to face. And what do they do? They take communion. They break bread and, and they have the wine together. They take communion together. And Melchizedek spoke, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He blessed him. Well, right after Melchizedek blessed Abram, this was a like a pastor blessing a church here. Right after Melchizedek blessed him, what happened? You read that all these years, nothing had been moving in Abraham's life, right? Now, all of a sudden, his name is being changed to Abraham. He's given the covenant of circumcision where he cut up those animals. God appeared to him, and then Sarah got pregnant. Everything started happening. I believe it's connected to that point in time where a man of God blessed Abram. There's a power in that. So you see the power of when you start something new in life, get a blessing. When you get married, get a blessing over your marriage. There's, there's something about revival and speaking blessings that the fire falls. And to move forward into your destiny, get somebody to bless you into your destiny. Jacob, many people think that Jacob was prophesying an old man leaning on his staff, elderly man, gathered his twelve sons, some of them hard-headed, some of them rambunctious, some of them that he probably wanted to take his staff and hit them over the head with, you know, and all that. He had them all come in, and he spoke a blessing over every one of them. And some people think, well, Jacob prophesied because what he said came to pass. Wrong. He did not prophesy. The Bible says he blessed them. What happened was, is the power of a blessing is so powerful that when, Abraham, when Jacob spoke it over his sons, it created that and caused it to come to pass in their life. He didn't prophesy it. He blessed them. The Bible says he blessed them. He didn't say he prophesied. David, when he brought the ark of God into Jerusalem, and he was dancing around, and Micah got mad at him. Remember the story? You know. Anyway, he come in, he's dancing around all crazy. The shofars are blasting. They're praising God around the ark and all that. David gave the people the food. And what did he do? He said he went home to bless his family. The father blessing the family there's awesome power in the, there's awesome power especially in a male authority figure speaking a blessing like a husband over a wife the father over children the pastor over a church a grandfather over his descendants like grandchildren there's an awesome power and authority in speaking blessings that once that's spoken out of your mouth and it rests on somebody, it will start having creative power to bring that change to pass in their life. Where things were once stubborn, they move. I mean, they start moving. The awesome power of blessings to bring change. Once you very first start speaking blessings, maybe you've been somebody that has grumbled and complained and been negative and spoke so many curses. You need to ask God's forgiveness and pull all that stuff back up and, and break it in Jesus' name. Lord, forgive me for saying those things. I pull it up off my life and I break those curses. And once you start speaking blessings, it's like the ground has not rained in many years. And it's dry and it's cracked. There's open cracks. You get a sprinkler out there and you start running water over that. At first, the water just soaks into that ground and disappears. 
but you keep watering it, pretty soon you notice the ground's moist. Pretty soon the cracks start coming back together. And before too long, now you've got standing water. That's how blessings work. You start blessing at first and it just soaks up. Then you keep blessing. You notice a little something. Then you keep blessing. You notice a little more. You keep blessing. Pretty soon you got standing water. You got some change going on. It went from being a parched land to a fruitful land. In the Bible, rain symbolically speaks of not only the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but also blessings from heaven. So what can you bless? You can bless land. As a priest, and your priest also, I'm telling you to, to go. If you own land, you've never prayed over it, take communion on that land. You can pour out the communion juice however you want to do it. Some people will open up with a shovel, open it up, put like the body and blood of the Lord. But apply the blood to the land confess the sin, get that land holy, and then speak a blessing over the land. Dedicate it to God. Consecrate it, but bless the land. Same with a home. You know, God told the children of Israel, I'm going to send you in to, to inhabit homes you didn't build. Problem. You didn't build them. You didn't live there originally. The people that lived there originally were steeped in the occult. So you need those, he had to teach those priests, you need to know how to clean out homes spiritually. Okay? This is something, Clorox bleach, it's not going to do. You're going to have to go in there and clean it, clean it out spiritually. Okay? So go in. Take communion. Apply the blood all throughout your home, however you want to do it. There's not a one single way to do this. Just be led by the Spirit. Spiritually clean it out. Lord, forgive us for all the pollution and junk that's been here. Confess it. Get it clean under the blood. I command anything out of here that's not of God. In Jesus' name, this is now holy ground. This is my property. I lay claim to it. It's going to be righteous. It's going to be filled with the glory. And then begin to go through speaking in tongues and praying and speak blessings throughout that home. Go into bedrooms. And I'll put something up with this sermon too that I have a list of things you can speak over bedrooms and kitchens and things like that. But go through and anoint those bedrooms and speak a blessing, something like I bless this bedroom. This is holy ground. This is a place of sweet rest, pleasant dreams, God's peace, God's presence is here. It's off limits to any demonic activity. It's not going to circulate here. This is holy ground. And there's going to be dreams from the Holy Spirit. There's going to be visions of the night from the Holy Spirit. I bless this room in Jesus' name. Okay? And put, listen, when you're blessing, you're using your faith and your authority to take words out of your mouth and put them. You hear me? Put them on it. Stamp it on the... You need to visualize, I'm putting it in this room right now. I'm putting it, when you bless somebody, I'm stamping it on this person's life. It's like a judge that slaps down the gavel like that. You're stamping it on somebody's life. It's like a stamp. What happens when you go through and you got your passport? What do they do? They stamp it. They mark it. It's marked. So from that day forward, whenever you take your passport, it's been stamped by somebody. You can't get that back off. When somebody speaks a blessing onto another person, it stamps that person and marks them. And they carry that blessing from now on. Bless marriages. Bless your children. Bless vehicles for safe travel. Get some anointing oil. Amen. Look, I drive down the road all the time and see some wreck. How many times have you driven down the road and seen wrecks? Okay. Get some anointing oil and anoint your car. Stand over it like a priest and bless that thing to have safe travels. I bless you, vehicle. Everywhere you go, you're going to be safe. You're going to be protected. There's not going to be evil befall you. You're not going to have wrecks. There's angels around you taking you safely. Wherever you go, I bless you in Jesus' name. You can bless your finances. Get out your wallet. Slap it on the table. Anoint it with oil. 
Speak a blessing over your finances. Amen? Also, I've, I've, told, I've asked the elders to do this as well, but bless offerings and finances. You know, many times you'll see the real religious traditional churches. Brother so-and-so, would you bless the offering? He doesn't bless the offering. Lord, we thank you for today. You know, and he goes through his thing, and then they go. They're not blessing the offering. Okay? The way you bless the offering is, is you get all that offering, put your hands on it like a priest, in Jesus' name I bless this offering, that you will multiply and increase and go farther than you could ever go because God's blessing is on you, in Jesus' name. I bless you. You see that? Don't ask God to do it. You do it. See, a lot of times we're asking God to do things, and God's going, wait a second, I gave you authority to do it. You do it. You do it. You drive out that spirit. You speak over that, that cancer, whatever, die in Jesus' name. You bless that. We have authority. Another thing is blessing food and drink. There's nothing wrong with asking God's blessing. And Paul said all food's consecrated by the word and prayer. So there's nothing wrong with praying over your food and all that, especially when you go to certain places. Because other cultures and other religions, they dedicate their food to demon gods. Okay, they do. There's nothing wrong with praying over, Lord, this food is, is holy unto you. It's, you know, dedicated to you or whatever. Pray, whatever. But you bless the food. You bless it. You speak, Lord, we thank you for this food and drink. It's holy unto you. May it be blessed to the nourishment of our bodies. You use your words, I, may it be blessed in Jesus' name. And may our bodies be blessed with health and life for your service. You release it out. Amen? Five ways you can be blessed straight from the Lord. Number one, be a tither. God says he'll rebuke the devourer, open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so many blessings, there's not room to contain it, and nations will rise to call you blessed. Be a tither. Number two is bless Israel. It seems like in the way you bless Israel, you're blessed. So in other words, if you bless them financially, it'll come back on you type of thing. Then secondly, did you ever know that you can bless the Lord? Does God need your blessing? No. God's not up there in heaven going, oh, if they would just bless me today, I could do good. You know? I wish somebody would bless me. He doesn't need your blessing. But there's a promise as you worship Him. And you say, Lord, I bless you. Listen to this. It says in Psalms 103, what did David say? Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all is within me. He blessed him. Now listen to this. You know, you reap what you sow. You bless God. Now look what comes back on you. Who what? Forgives all my sins. Heals all my diseases. Redeems my life from destruction. Crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. Satisfies my mouth with good things. And renews my youth, my youth like the eagle. Those are some major promises by just blessing the Lord. So, I would encourage you in your praise and worship time to bless Him. Okay, He likes it. He doesn't need it, but He likes it. And He in turn says, you bless me? Okay, well, I'll give you these. Another thing is, those that seek the unity of God's people, God said, I will command my blessing. Psalms 133. How good and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that poured over Aaron's head runs down his beard onto his garments. There I will command my blessing. What did Jesus do when he was brought the little children? Did Jesus pray over them? Grab the little child? Oh, Father. No. Did he prophesy over them? Here, let me tell you what's going to happen over the next 30 years, little guy. Come here. 
No, he didn't do that. He pulled them up, I'm sure, in his lap, and he blessed them. And I promise you, every word that he put on that child as a blessing, I promise you, every word came to pass. And also, we need to understand that the blessings given to Abraham come on us as Gentiles through the cross. That is important that we really lay hold of that. Because every heir of Abraham's life was blessed. Let me give you this. I'm going to close with these last two things. All right. There were seven categories of blessing. If you can release your faith and let this get into your spirit and just, I mean, just really give you faith. But every heir of your life is blessed because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're engrafted into the vine of Israel. What God gave Abraham comes on you. Jesus has literally caused by his blood you to be engrafted into the oath that was given to Abraham what was on Abraham what God invested in him you are of the seed of Abraham the the children of Israel are like the sand on the seashore it's earthly but you as the people of God as Christians are like the stars in the skies it's heavenly but you are descendants of Abraham true Hebrews circumcised in the heart amen all right so the Bible says in Galatians 3.13 that the, the blessings given to Abraham come on us. So what are the blessings? They're under these seven categories. Number one, exaltation and promotion. That means you're the head and not the tail, the top and not the bottom. The head makes decisions. The tail gets kicked around. You're going to be promoted if you believe this. If you'll lay hold of this, you'll find yourself being in positions of authority to make decisions, not get kicked around. Number two, health, divine health. Number three, long life on the earth. That your days are not going to be cut short. You're not going to die in your teens. You're not going to die in your 20s. You're not going to die in your 30s. You're going to have longevity on the earth. Number four, reproductiveness. That's the ability to bring forth children in the earth. And it's also the ability to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Number five, prosperity, abundance, and wealth. The Bible says that God gives us the power to gain wealth. Amen? The blessing of the Lord makes rich and has no sorrow to it. The, the blessing of God brings financial provision in your life and prosperity. Number six, and this is a big one, favor. If you have favor on you, it will cause people to like you that normally couldn't stand you. It will cause people, you go into a room and people want to do good to you and they don't even know why. You'll probably leave and they'll be thinking, why in the world did I just give that person such a good deal? I don't know why I did. I just knocked off 10% off this purchase and I don't even know why I did it. It's the favor on you. Favor causes, you'll walk into a room and it causes circumstances to turn in your favor. That normally would have went very bad. The seventh category is victory over all your enemies. Listen to what the Word of God says in connection to that. The enemies that come at you in one direction will flee in seven. So they come marching at you like a like a uniformed army, and God so slaps them around that they go running, screaming like little girls in seven directions. Amen? It says that you will possess the gates of your enemies. That means where your enemy's strength was, you will conquer that. Just like David conquered uh, the land of the Jebusites, which was supposed to be impregnable, and made it Jerusalem. From Jebusalem to Jerusalem. You will take ground from your adversary. The Bible says you will crush your enemies under your feet. 
they will fall by the sword before you, that even one of you will chase a thousand and two ten thousand. Now, think about that. One chasing a thousand, it's pretty good odds. So the blessing of the Lord gives supernatural victory. Supernatural. Like a David killing a Goliath. If you really understand that story, that Goliath was probably a Nephilim, and he was legitimately a giant, most likely a very ugly man, probably a very stinky man, but a very, very powerful, deadly warrior. And David was this little snotty-nosed teenage boy that just knew how to throw a rock out of his sling. Okay, This was a trained warrior that had a whole army afraid of him. David was just a shepherd's boy that knew how to throw a rock. And God gave him a supernatural victory. Alright, the last one is blessing the poor. You want to be blessed of the Lord? Then regard the poor, bless the poor. Listen to Psalms 41. Blessed are those that regard for the poor, the weak and defenseless. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. Now wouldn't you like for God to say about you, I'm going to deliver them when they're in trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed of the land. Don't you want heaven to say about you, man, they're counted among the blessed in the land. He does not, God does not give them over to the desires of their foes. God says for those that regard the poor, your enemies want your destruction, but I'm not going to let your enemies have your way with you. You're not going to be given over to the desire of your enemies. The Lord will sustain them on a sickbed and restore them back to hell. It's an awesome promise. And of course, we know the story of Cornelius when it was time for the gospel to go from just being Jewish among um, the disciples to go out now to begin to affect the Gentiles. The angel of the Lord came to Cornelius. And a centurion, I'm going to read this, was known in the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout, God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need. Who? To the poor. He gave to those in need. He gave generously to the poor and prayed to God regularly. One day about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Now, what was three in the afternoon? That was the evening sacrifice. Cornelius stared at the angel in fear. You ever wonder what you would do if an angel really appeared to you and it was the real deal? Well, everybody in the Bible, their knees knocked together and they stared with fear. So... Anyway, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He said, and the angel said, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man by the name of Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And you know the story. Because Cornelius gave to the poor and he was a God-fearing man and he prayed, the angel came to Cornelius and said, Cornelius, you have God's attention. When it was time for God to send the gospel to the Gentiles, of all the people that were alive, God picked you. You want to know why God picked you? Because you gave generously to the poor, and because you're a God-fearing man, and because you prayed regularly, and your prayers and your alms to the poor have gone up before God as a memorial offering, and God has picked you. Now go send for Peter... And he's going to come and preach the gospel to you. And when Peter came, another day of Pentecost broke out. You want to know the truth? Read it. The same thing that happened in the, to, the, to the disciples in regards to the upper room broke out among the Gentiles. And the Jews were astonished. 
that the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles like that. The priestly ministry, the garments of the priesthood, these are so powerful for us to understand that it has to do with our the turban, our minds not being double-minded, the understanding where the righteousness of God, to understand that these garments are the, are the wedding garments that's preparing us for the Lord's coming. Talked about the, the breastplate, talked about the stones. Being careful that amethyst stone represents not drunkenness, avoiding that. The Nazarite vow, not that I'm saying that you should do this or anything, but Lou Engel has written a book on it. It's very powerful. You get a chance to read Nazarite DNA. It's an awesome book. And he talks about the Nazarite vow. And there were people in the Bible that were Nazarites from birth, like John the Baptist and like um, Samuel. He was a Nazarite from birth. There were people that were Nazarites, okay? And a Nazarite vow could just be for a few days, or it could be for a few years, or it could be for a lifetime, okay? But the Nazarite vow was being separated as holy unto God, and they would let their hair grow as long as they were on that vow. That's why Samson's hair was so long. They avoided drinking any wine, and they weren't supposed to touch dead bodies. Dead bodies is like going back to your old past sins God's delivered you from. Okay, So a modern-day Nazarite vow is keeping yourself really holy and pure before God. Separating yourself from the world. Other people in the body of Christ might be dressing a certain way. They might be talking a certain way. They might be drinking certain things. They might be watching certain things. But you have decided that you're going to set yourself apart as holy unto God. As a Nazarite. Amen? Alright, I want to go ahead and shut down.